I got a little bit worried because I thought Lirio was introducing his husband. <coughs> so just as the melee happens and people are leaving here and my voice is recovering, <coughs> I love shouting and worship and sometimes it's not to my benefit. Um, who has already signed up for the equipping semester? Holy moly. Just look around for a second and see who hasn't signed up for the equipping semester. In fact, if you haven't, why don't you turn next to the person and ask them why they haven't signed up? Just do that quickly now. Let's ask them why they haven't signed up yet. I'm going to pick the best three answers. <coughs> okay, who got a brilliant answer? Anybody got an amazing answer for not signing up yet? <coughs> Excuse me. So, you guys know that we do this once a year. What happened was we used to have courses running out throughout the year and it was like the same 30 people used to attend all the different courses through the year and so it meant that 90% of the church never really got a moment of intentional equipping and discipleship in their lives. And, and actually this is what this is about. It's about discipleship. Some people think this is about me getting some more knowledge and I hope you gain some knowledge but that's not the objective of this. There's enough knowledge floating around there. What this time is, is a time of discipleship. And uh, those seven courses that are being run are opportunities for you to, to, um, to invest something in the command that Christ has given that we should be His disciples. And uh, it's not difficult. I think most of the reason why people... Can I, I, I'm going to suggest two reasons why people don't, haven't signed up yet. One is because you're lazy. Okay, that's one. I'm, I'm not being horrible. I mean, I fall into that category as well. I, I understand that. You, there's other things and... It's just to make the effort is one thing. Number two is, it's, there's a disease, a Dubai disease that says, let me just keep my options open. I'm not entirely sure what February holds for me yet. It's still, Rob, it's still two weeks away. Don't expect me to make a commitment already. It's like, but actually that's the opposite of our walk with Christ. And so I want to encourage you to, uh, if you don't have one of these, or stand outside and stare up at the banners up on the wall and see what courses are being run. Say to the Lord, Father, will you tell me which one I should be doing? And if you don't get a clear answer, close your eyes and go like this, and then do that course, okay? And then you can either grab one of these papers at the desk at the back, fill it in and drop it off at the Connect table, and then you'll be registered and you'll get an email. Or you can go online to a very difficult webpage to remember called equippingsemester.com. And uh, you can just register there. It takes a couple of minutes and you'll be registered. And you'll say, well, Rob, I'll do it next week or a week after. Why don't you serve us by doing it sooner rather than later? Would you ask, mind doing that? So I know, I know what it's like. I'm, I know. I've, I've been in your, I'm in your shoes as well. But serve us as a team that are running this by going in and registering as soon as possible. Then we get a sense of how many manuals we're going to need to print. We can also send you the email so you know what's coming up in the course and in a sense, how you need to prepare yourself for it. The marriage course, for example, has got a little bit of pre-work that needs to be done before you come on it. So we want to send you that email as soon as possible. And, um, and it also enables us to know where, we, whether we're going to do the teaching downstairs or upstairs, depending on the amount of people that are signed up and those sorts of things. So if you could do that, that would be wonderful. Good. <coughs> wonderful. Well, you probably noticed that I'm a bachelor at the moment, just for the moment. I'm still married, obviously. My wife has abandoned me. I was mom's taxi yesterday. I literally was in the car from 2 o'clock in the afternoon until 7 o'clock in the evening. I mean, when I say literally, I mean not literally, but almost literally. It was, it was five hours of going backwards and forwards. And so I just want to appreciate 
all the moms who drop, pick up and drop kids. Can I just give them a hand? That's like <laughs> unbelievable. <clears throat> I thought about slashing all my tires in my car, so I'd say to my kids, I can't take you anywhere. I've got to Anyway, but I didn't. I, I moved them around. Linda is um, in Athens at the moment with a team, Rob and Julia Drain, um, uh, Betsy and Val are with her. I think that's the whole team, and they're ministering to the refugees. I got an SMS from Linda this morning to say that they're going to a registration center where the refugees register themselves for the whole process of care and that sort of stuff, and their job today is to take care of their children while they're going through the registration process. So um, how's that for just an incredibly practical thing, and they go prayed up and ready to be used of God, and I, and I honestly believe this, that every time they lay their hands on a child or speak to a child, Something of the grace and love of God is released over them, and so really significant. Please be praying for them. Okay, so we are beginning our series on holy cows, and so uh, this magnificent art behind me was produced by Clint, and uh, this is a, um, we're going to do this over eight weeks, and we, we really do um, the outcomes we want from this time, is we want you guys to be um, solid in your conviction about the Word of God. We want you guys to be convinced about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we sang about today, that, the, that there is a good news. That um, I, I love the line of that song where it says, what does it say about sin? Um, it's, it's, it's kind of proven sin wrong or, or, or dis, you know, disproven the claims of sin. The, the sin has no power compared to the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's profound and significant and wonderful. It, it means that the solution to the the world crisis we have around us is not the United Nations or government or ideologies or this or that. The solution is in Jesus Christ. And sometimes our small numbers as we gather together um, betrays the fact that this is the answer to the whole world. And just because many will turn a deaf ear and harden their heart to the message of salvation doesn't make the message less urgent or more or less wonderful than it is. And I hope out of this time you gripped with this the sense of, man, I'm carrying this message of life. And I hope that some of the, the lies that have been spoken into the world and into the church are exposed and you are set free from them. And so over this time, we're going to tackle some, some things that are controversial. They may not be controversial to you. You might say, well, of course I believe that it's easy for me, but I hope it just strengthens you. For some of you, and I think a lot of people, they wrestle with this thing. I, I know this is what the Word says, but... But I still feel like maybe this is right and, and, I, and God wants to speak into those things and, and, and kind of give you some real strength. Does that make sense? Okay, so let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together with your people. Thank you for the gracious gift we have, Lord God, of, of sitting under your word. And thank you for your word, how precious it is, but not just given to us, but given to us and by you and brought to life. In every culture and every age by your Holy Spirit. Made alive to us, powerful and effective in its, in its ability, Lord God, to, to get into the very deepest place of our life. The places where it matters. And I pray that your word would do that today. In Jesus' name. So I got up this morning and I went to pray. And it's, the weather, isn't the weather beautiful at the moment? Eh? It was, it was actually, I was actually quite chilly as I was walking and praying. And, and I was thinking what a privilege it is to live in this city. You might have a tough time here, but it, it is a privilege. But one of the things that I love most of all about living in Dubai is the diversity that's here. So we've got almost every skin tone that you could imagine, every accent that you can think of, every um, 
um, every type of food that you can think about. Last week after the meeting, we took Mike and Pilavach and Andy Croft. We took them to an Arabic, really like street kind of Arabic food place. They wanted to taste the, the food of, uh, of the Middle East. And we ate lamb um, tikka and lamb chops and hummus and tabbouleh and fatouche and all those beautiful yummy, yummy things. And, and I never, when I lived in South Africa, I never even knew there were such things. And then I come into this country and I get exposed to this diversity and I, and I love it. And I, and I love the, the fact that if you look across this room, it's like a kaleidoscope of God's creation. And, and I love the fact that there's somebody leaning forward and interpreting in Russian while I preach. Isn't that amazing? So there's, I love that about the city. God is doing something incredible. But it's not just a diversity of cultures. There's a diversity, diversity of ideas as well. And not just Dubai, but in the world today, and especially now, in what we call the information age. Not the industrial age, but the information age. And so ideas are being proliferated or spread with an ever-increasing speed around us. And so we, what we have in our city, <clears throat> but I think which is increasingly true of every city in the world, is this marketplace of different ideas. And not little things. Not like whether you like hummus or not. Mike thinks hummus is like, um, what do you call it? Polyfiller. You know what you fill your wall with. That's what Mike thinks it tastes like. I love it. I, so, but we, we differ. He, and there's no right or wrong on this thing. I mean, I'm obviously right. But there's no right or wrong on this thing. <laughs> we can't go to the Bible and see scripture on hummus, for example. But these ideas don't just differ on things of personal preference. They differ on the big things. The, the, the things that we call that shape our worldview, our picture of how the world works around us. Those questions like, where do I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And some people have a, a paganistic view of the world, that, that creation is actually divine, that we worship the trees and the plants and whatever. We worship the cows, I suppose. Then others have a, a polyist, polytheistic view of the world where there are many gods. And if you go to India or Sri Lanka, there are, there are tens of millions of gods that we can worship. There are people that believe in a God and, and even those that believe in these layers of gods and these millions of gods, they see those as fallen, not fallen, but, um, but fallible, even the gods, but above exists this force, this impersonal force that is actually the God thing, but not a person, it's a, it's a force. And then there are those, like many of us in this room, and, and I actually hope not all of us, and the only reason I say that is because I hope that we have people in this room that are bold enough to be on a spiritual journey to sit and listen and say, look, I'm not there, but I want to hear what you have to say about this God that you serve. And people like us that believe in a, a single God. And there are other religions as well that, differ, that believe that but differ in other ways. And then there's those that don't believe there's a God at all. We call them, well, they would call themselves atheists. They're anti-theists. They're against God. They just don't believe there's a God. And uh, the more acceptable term which we hear around us all the time now is secular humanism. And many cultures say we're a secular culture. We're not a religious culture. And by that, they start off meaning we're going to be open to every religion. But we, they end up meaning this is a culture where God, where there is no God. And he cannot break into this culture. I was reading in the New York Times this week about a, a man by the name of Bart Campola. And Bart is the son of a man that I've quoted a number of times, Tony Campola, quite a famous Christian speaker. And uh, Bart had followed in his dad's footsteps. He had become a, a minister of the gospel. He was on that Christian preaching circuit, going around everywhere preaching. 
And the money that he made from that he used to use to go and minister into different contexts and serve the poor and, and very commendable things. And Bart Campolo was actually a cyclist as well, which is to his credit, I suppose. But he was cycling one day and he, and he crashed and he smashed his head quite hard, though he had a helmet on. And um, he wakes up with an epiphany. I don't really believe in God. And he, this man who had been the preacher of the gospel, this, this quite, quite well-known proclaimer of Christian truth, became a man who, who like, he said, I came out the closet. He says, he says everybody knew. Now, when friends said, look, I actually don't really believe in God, they go, yeah, we knew, we knew. And then the, it is interesting what they said about him in this article. I want to read a small quote. It says, are you guys not putting my slides up today? It says this, but as he took stock of the rest of his life, Campola decided there was no reason an atheist couldn't still minister to. Instead of comforting people with the good news of Jesus, he had preached secular humanism, a kinder cousin of atheism. It helped them accept that we're all going to die, that this life is all there is, and that therefore we have to make the most of our brief, glorious time on earth. And he would spread this message using the best evangelical techniques, the same ones he had mastered as a Christian. And that, what I'm trying to tell you is that this battle of ideas, this battle of ideologies is not unimportant. It's, it actually has a profound impact upon the decisions and the choices people make. And I think it affects the unsaved because, and I don't think Bart Campola was ever saved. And he doesn't think he was ever saved, truly. He had an account. And may, may I just jump in here? Please don't sit here week after week after week when you hear this message of Jesus Christ and you haven't totally, and I mean this friends, surrendered yourself to him and trust in him alone for your salvation. Because the worst thing you can do is to sit here and be comforted by the Christian environment but not have come to the place of surrender. And uh, one thing I want to say is now the only difference between those who are in their sin and, and subject to the sin, and those of us that are set free from sin, who are the believers, is Jesus Christ. There's, there's, it's not my behavior or my membership of a church or the amount of money that I put into the offering basket or how faithful I am to my wife or any of those things that earns me salvation. Nothing earns me salvation. The difference is Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to you, don't be a part of Bart Campola. Don't confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, but not believe it in your heart. And, uh, and I believe that this battle of ideology creates a barrier, hostility to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Barriers of, of ignorance and barriers of pride and barriers of sensuality. Whatever it is, they, they, they come up and they stop people coming in to the salvation that God offers to them. But I believe it's also a danger for Christians as well. Because it undermines our faith and our trust in, the, in God and in His Word. The, the Bible... My Bible's on my iPad. I, I don't have my other one with me, but I want to hold it up to illustrate the point. Let me borrow your Bible, Mike. The Bible, this is something more than just a collection of writings. It's not like somebody has got together and, and got around the world and found the best kind of writings that he could and put them all into one book. This is the revelation of God to mankind. And when our faith and our trust in God and His revelation, the Word of God, is undermined, then with it, goes our confidence, our obedience, and our devotion. And it also undermines our ability to fulfill our mandate, to go and disciple all nations. And we, we disciple all nations, commanding them to obey that every, everything Christ has taught us. And when we begin to doubt 
the existence of Christ. We begin to doubt the exclusive claims of Christ to be the only way to the Father. We begin to doubt the commands of Christ that this is how we ought to live. Then we are left with an inability to proclaim with any confidence and conviction those things that he said. There is one caution for us as believers as we go through the series. And we're going to tough, tackle some interesting things. We're going to, next week, we, we're dealing with a thing about the whole war on gender. That we actually get to choose our own gender. It doesn't matter what genitalia you're born with. You can decide if you're a boy or a girl. Now that is becoming normality. And even though it's insanity, the insanity of one generation is becoming the normality of another generation. We're going to deal with our, our sexuality, sex before, after, and during marriage. We're going to deal with submission in marriage and many other topics we're going to deal with. And the danger is if, if there's an area in there that you're doing um, well and you, 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 it's not a problem for you, we can come across quite superior with others that are battling with it. And so, but there was a, there was a 16th century clergyman by the name of John Bradford. My dad used to quote this guy all the time, although I don't think he knew his name. When he saw a group of prisoners being led off towards execution, John Bradford apparently said, there but for the grace of God go I. And there is a sense of humility and compassion that accompanies us because we know the reason why we can sit here and, and recognize the Word of God as the Word of God, or the Bible as the Word of God, is because of what Christ has done inside of us. And it's by His grace. And so those that are not there, we see with humility and compassion. How's this for an ironic thing? John Bradford would actually be led to his execution. He died for his faith. And therefore, by the grace of God, he went as well. And so I, there just needs to be a profound humility, but conviction and courage that comes as we go through the series as well. It's a bit like Mike Pilovacci shared the story, I think it was on Friday, I think it was, yeah, about the young lady, he was at a youth conference and, and he had a word of knowledge that there was somebody in the meeting that was committing adultery with a pastor. And a 19-year-old girl, I don't, he said 16 and 19, so we'll just go for 17-year-old girl, 17 and a half-year-old girl came up and she, uh, um, on the side, obviously not in front of everybody, she confessed that she'd been having a sexual relationship, an adult adulterous relationship with a married youth pastor and she was desperate to be free and the point of God's word was not to bring her into condemnation it was not to bring her into a place of shame it was not to cast her aside it was exactly the opposite of those things it was to lift the condemnation it was to lift the shame it was to bring her into relationship again through the finished work of Jesus Christ and that's the point of of our call and our mandated believers is not to run around the streets meeting random people going, you sinner, you this. and this. No, our, our job is to actually preach this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, I was watching um, uh, an interview on HBO the other day. Well, I quite enjoy YouTube these days. And there was an interview with Bill Mayer, and he was, he was interviewing a Christian guy who had written a book. I don't know what the book was. And Bill Mayer made a joke about, I can't understand how anybody can believe in a talking snake. I mean, and he was mocking that. And I was thinking as I was listening to this, how, how if, you, if you start at the, if, you, if the starting point is that there is a supernatural realm, if the starting point is that there is a God that created everything around us, why would it even be slightly hard to believe spiritual things like a snake could be given a voice or a snake could be possessed by something that would use it to speak through or that whatever it was. And uh, we... Read in the scriptures that we, with God, has an opponent, a created being, an angel who has fallen into rebellion against God, who chose to rebel against God, and he is a vociferous 
ferocious opponent of God and his ways. And we meet him in the beginning of the the, the record of God in Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to read a scripture to to you now. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, now it's, it's accepted, friends, that this is actually the, the devil, whatever manifestation he put on, the Bible says that the devil can come like an angel of light. And so he can appear in many different ways, but in this instance he came as a snake. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, otherwise you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, be des- was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well. So, the devil was asking three questions in a very unsubtle way. I want to tell you the devil is not subtle. And he said, number one, has God really spoken? I mean, what he's trying to say is God hasn't spoken. God hasn't, there, there is no record of him speaking to us. He says, secondly, isn't God lying to you? And thirdly, you go to the next slide, he says, isn't truth actually that God's lying to, uh, there we go. And you go to the next one now as well. There we go. And this is essentially what he's saying. There is no absolute truth. All truth is relative. You understand the difference between absolute truth, there is a right and a wrong, and relative. So in absolute truth, this is right, and by definition, the thing that is opposite to it is wrong. And so it's not relative. It's not right in this situation or right for this person. This is always right, and this is always wrong. There is absolute truth. There can't be a God and not be a God. God can't be personal and impersonal. Those are opposite, completely opposite ends of the spectrum. The law of logic tells us that they cannot exist together. Secondly, the devil says that man is good. Because when, when he said to Eve, you won't die. You're surely not going to die. So you can eat of that apple. And the, the whole idea of the fall that we are essentially, that we are fundamentally or bent towards wickedness, is the devil says is a lie. Actually, we are inherently good. If you can just change your environment, everything will be fine. If we could just parent our children well, they'll be absolutely fine. There'll be no sin in their lives. You, you can be the best parent on planet earth, my friends. You can be, you can be the, the parent of parents. The kind of, like Jesus is the king of kings. You can be the parent of parents. You cannot parent your children to the place of sinlessness because it is inherent in our nature, inherited by God, but through Adam, and it's part of the fall, and there is a consequence to our sin. And thirdly, the devil's lie is that man can be his own God. He can be completely autonomous. He can come to the place where he says, no one can tell me what to do. And the devil, he's evil, but he's not stupid. And if it worked with Adam and Eve, who were the only, other than Jesus Christ, people that were born sinless, if he could persuade them to go into sin through this tactic, well, then it's going to work in generation after generation after generation. And if you look around us in the world today, you will see that these three lies are the things that sustain the holy cows of our society. And one of the, 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 the most upheld values in a secular society, there's one word that, 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 is, that transcends every other word, and it's this word called tolerance. 
And that word is sometimes, there's another word that they would use words in its name. You, now you're getting ahead of me. Just go back a slide. Is that, um, is that the, is, is they use the euphemisms love and they use words like diversity. And the idea, I mean, which we obviously naturally think of when we think about tolerance is that Leroy is different to me. I wouldn't grow a beard like that, but I can tolerate it. Do you know what I mean? I don't have to, no, no, no listen, well, I mean, I mean, you can laugh at Leroy, it's fine, but, but that's not my point here, is that I couldn't grow a beard like that, it's probably more to the point, but it's not that I have to celebrate it, I don't have to go, geez, that's the most beautiful beard I've ever seen, because that would just be flattery, I mean, that's, I mean, it looks great on Leroy, but, but, but I can tolerate it, I can, he can be my friend, he can be on leadership with us, we can work together, play together, live together because of that idea of this is different. Or his skin color is different to my skin color, or his education, or his economic status. And for those reasons, tolerance is really important. And we live in a country where there are different religious ideas, and we've got to learn how to live with tolerance. And so I don't walk around the street angry with Muslims, or angry with Hindus, or angry with atheists because they're different to me. I can genuinely love them and appreciate them and value them despite the differences. But the way tolerance is used in secular humanism is in a completely different way. Tolerance is very clearly this, and now you can go to the next slide, that there is no absolute truth. And so no one can tell anyone else what is true, and this by definition, what is good or evil. So you can believe what you want, but you can't tell anybody. There is no absolute truth, and you can't claim that there is any absolute truth. And I know you'll say, but Rob, that's not even true. What about things like murder? Everybody agrees it's wrong and things like that. And there are some, but look at those boundaries that are coming closer and closer and closer. So things like abortion that for many of us would consider to be murder, around the world today, that's been completely redefined. I was talking to somebody yesterday. Oh, it was a guy from, it was Matt, Matt Jones, down in Cornerstone, and he was saying, you're saying his baby looks like him. It hasn't been born yet. I said to Matt, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. He's got 3D scans and he really decided the baby looks like I've never heard anybody say that before. But then he was telling us about some of the facts about, oh, that, that a baby girl in the womb um, already has in her unborn body every egg she will ever need for every um, uh, ovulation, every cycle she'll ever go through is inside her at whatever, however many months it is. And yet people will kill that child and say it's not murder. And so there is no absolute truth. And the minute you stand up and you declare this to be true, you become an enemy of that higher value tolerance. You, you're touching this holy cow. And, uh, and, that's tr- and, and this objection is true of many parts of our humanity and many things that, that are parts of our morality. But it's probably true more of our sexuality than anything else. It's true that you can't call things like adultery or fornication or homosexuality sin. But what about greed and drunkenness and drug addiction? All around the world today, those things have become morally neutral. Transgenderism, unforgiveness, anger, or even the simple idea that nobody can tell me what to do, not even a God, is something that's elevated today as a virtue rather than seen as the very cause of the first fall of the enemy, this thing called pride. And so the truth is being redefined. And um, the problem is, it's, not, it's becoming that you can't even believe those things in private anymore. You can't even, in a place like this, our church, you can't even stand up and declare something that we have the freedom. I'm not saying I can't say it, yeah? But I'm telling you that sometimes, like, there's times where I'll stand up here and I'll declare something about an area 
and I'll, I'll feel a resistance to that thing being able to be freely proclaimed. Because there is, how dare you? And even Christians ask that question today. And it goes from being something that, okay, now you must do in private, to actually even our public lives. There's no part of our lives where it can be, can be seen. There's a story about a guy called Brennan Eich. Or I think that's how you pronounce his name. Eich. Eich. E-I-C-H. How would you pronounce that? Eich. Eich. Afrikaans would say. Anyway, Brennan Eich, he, was, he held the record for being the shortest length of time as a CEO of a, multi, of a multinational um, IT company called um, Mozilla. And there it is, he stepped down. After 10 days, he was compelled to step down. And uh, the reason was he was thought to be a bigot who couldn't possibly lead a company with um, diverse groups of people. And they would have questioned his ability to lead people of diverse races, but certainly his ability to lead people with diverse sexual orientation. What had happened was, I think this was about two, what was the date up there? Whatever that date. So I think this was a couple of years ago, 2014, I think. Yeah, there it is, 2014. And I think about five years before this, California had held a referendum on something called Proposition 8. Does anybody remember that proposition? So what they did, California, of all, nation, of all um, states, can you believe it? California decided they were going to um, take a referendum, a vote on a referendum as to whether, how they should define marriage. Whether marriage is between a man and a woman of the opposite sex or marriage is whatever it needs to be. And this was in no way going to impinge upon the civil liberties of homosexuals or the, the, the rights of homosexuals and civil partnerships. It just wanted to preserve the definition of marriage for they felt was a building block for families, which is a building block for society. And so Brent and I, who, f- who obviously agreed with this, certainly at the time, wrote a checkout to the guys campaigning for Proposition 8 and contributed to the, that campaign. The referendum was passed. Californians voted 52% that that should be how marriage is defined. That was tens, I think it was 13 million voted for the proposition. 13 million people agreed with Brendan. And then five years later, the, the courts overturned it. So they overturned the will of the people and they said, no, this is wrong. And they, they redefined marriage to include homosexual marriage, be that as it may. Brendan carries on with his life and he becomes CEO. And it's found out that he once wrote a check five years before in support of Proposition 8. And it becomes impossible for him to lead a company because he once held that view. And I'm telling you, friends, this is not fear-mongering on my part. I'm not scared of this at all. I actually love the, the, the challenge we're in because it now it becomes real. You can't pretend to be a Christian anymore. You've got to, you've got to decide, are you going to stand upon the Word of God in all of it or, or none of it? I mean, that's what you've got to decide. And, um, but it is this. I'm pointing out that tolerance is not just accepting that other people have different ideas. Tolerance in the way that the world sees it today. This holy cow is accepting the fact that there is no absolute truth. And you have no right to even hold an opinion that comes against that. You can't have this job if you hold an opinion. I think that's the sign of the beast as much as anything. So people say, well, Rob, isn't it better for us just to back down? Shouldn't we just, we'll do our thing, you know, like that kind of Joshua scripture. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I'm going I'm to raise Matthew, Hannah, and Ethan the way that I know God's called me to raise them and to hell with the rest of the world. And uh, that's one way, I suppose, you could go at it. But what about this scripture in Timothy? You can go to the next slide. Two slides. 1 Timothy 3.15 says this. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The Amplified Bible says this. The household of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and the stay, the prop and the support of truth. 
Not the United Nations, not this, not that, not anything. The church is the prop, the pillar, the stay of truth. And I want to show you a video from a, um, from a movie called Bridge of Spies. Who's seen that movie? It's an intellectual movie, so I don't expect too many to have seen it. I'm only joking. I'm just joking. Anyway, I, I really loved the movie. I thought the, it was brilliantly made, but there was one scene in particular that struck me. And uh, it's part of the second part of my title, The Sin Myth and the Standing Man. And so if we can just turn the lights off and watch that video. It's on the next slide. Standing there like that, you remind me of a man who used to come to our house when I was young. My father used to say, watch this man. So I did, every time he came. And never once did he do anything remarkable. And I remind you of him? <laughs> this one time, I was about the age of your son. Our house was overrun by partisan border guards. Dozens of them. My father was beaten, my mother was beaten, and this man, my father's friend, he was beaten. And I watched this man. Every time they hit him, he stood back up again. So they hit him harder. Still he got back to his feet. I think because of this they stopped the beating, they let him live. Stoiki Muzik. <laughs> I remember them saying it. Stoiki Muzik. Which sort of means like a standing man. I believe that's what the scripture in Timothy is telling us, is that we, the church, have to be the standing man. See, it's not about us going out and shouting at people and telling them what they're doing wrong. But there has to be somewhere, there has to be one group of people that will stand for what is true, regardless of the intimidation that comes their way. Regardless of how people want to redefine it or want to pressurize us to say something different, we will stand and say that, we are, that uh, God has spoken. That we are fallen and in need of a savior. And that we cannot be autonomous. And when people come to us and say, well that's tragic, what do we do? Then we preach the good news that there is a savior. But until people understand that there's a need for a savior, they can't come to the place of salvation. The idea is this. This is the kind of logical thinking. That we come. God created everything, including man and woman. Which I think most people that are Christians would agree with. Most, in fact, most people on earth would agree with this. God created everything, including man and woman. Secondly, God created sexuality and sexual intimacy as a gift for mankind. And those of us that are married would say, Hallelujah and thank you, Jesus. And then 
And then God declares the boundaries of sexual intimacy. Those conditions or places where sex is good and the places where it's bad or it's wicked based on the universe-defining divine character, who God is. The reason why sex is for marriage is because God is faithful in who He is and He wants us to be in our this highest act of intimacy, physical, spiritual, emotional intimacy, he wants us to practice faithfulness as well. It's because God is pure. And this highest act of intimacy, the sacred act of sexual intimacy, he wants us to reflect him as well. It's not random. God didn't decide, oh, let's give them a sexual drive and then just drive them crazy and tell them they can only have sex in marriage. It wasn't, it wasn't on that basis. It was on the basis of who am I? I'm creating them in my image. I'm putting in this, this capacity for incredible intimacy, but it can only be with one other person. Otherwise, it breaks down. And that which is a gift becomes a, a weapon against them. What happens, though, is, the, is our, our understanding of the truth has been challenged. And so people are writing things today like this, that Paul never understood our sexuality. If Paul had understood sexuality, and they, they're using this language to promote homosexuality, and this is not a serious focus on homosexuality, because this truth affects every area. But they say, well, Paul never understood sexual orientation. And Jesus, frankly, never understood sexual orientation. If he had, they would have written something completely different. And so it gets redefined. And so they say this, God creates everything, including man and woman. God creates sexuality and sexual intimacy as a gift to mankind. But then here's the change. Man declares the boundaries of sexual intimacy. The conditions where it's good and where it is wicked. Based on the universe defining principle of tolerance. And so now something becomes right or becomes wrong because we say it's right or wrong. Because, and, and, it's, and it's based on this point is that there is no truth. There is no, there is no right or wrong. And so based on what's most convenient for us at any season or time or, or what, um, what we're able to cope with in our sensibilities, that becomes right and something else becomes wrong. But if the Word of God is wrong about this, about something so fundamental to our human nature like our sexuality, then surely it's wrong about sin. And if the Bible is wrong about sin, then surely it's wrong about salvation. And then what authority remains for us to proclaim anything? In another way, let me put it this way. You can learn from general revelation that there's a God. Not everybody does, but you can look around. You can see the sun where it's positioned, the moon where it's positioned. You can look at a caterpillar that transforms into a butterfly. And the wonder of this process, you can look at your husband or your wife or your love for your children. And through general revelation, you go, I believe there's a God. You can learn from general revelation that man has a bent towards wickedness. You just have to turn on CNN or Sky News or Al Jazeera and you realize, okay, man is bent towards wickedness. But you cannot know how we are saved without special revelation. If God had not sent his son and the prophets, and if he had not recorded that revelation in the word of God, we would have no way of knowing how we can be saved. That is through the finished work of Christ and the forgiveness that he's earned for us upon the cross that we can be saved. We cannot know it without special revelation. But if this is undermined, if the, if the word of God is emasculated, then the, the message of the church is emasculated as well. And maybe works can save us. Maybe all religions do lead to God. Maybe we do die and that's the end of it. Because, because there is no one place that we can go to to find the truth. And so the challenge for us is how do we see the word of God? 
How do you see the Word of God? Do you see it as something that changes depending on the culture and the age that we live in? That has to be rewritten and redefined depending on the things that we come to understand? So because psychologists have changed the definition of um, a disorder, that means it's suddenly no longer a sin. It's actually an acceptable practice. Because the legislators have decided that abortion is no longer an illegal act, it it becomes no longer something that's sinful. Or do we... Stand upon this as the infallible word of God written to us, applicable to every culture and every generation. Somehow, supernaturally, this word of God never ages, never becomes irrelevant, and never becomes inapplicable to our lives. I'll give the Lord a hand. Thank you, Lord. Because if it becomes something that's culturally affected, we can go in and change the definitions. Men have tried this for years. They've crossed that out, we'll cross that out. We'll take this out, we'll put this out, and you end up with nothing. You end up with, with nothing. And, the pro, and in essence, the issue comes down to this. If, we, if, we, if, we, if, the, if people cannot look at the church and hear that there is a problem. See, we are not called to be the ones that call them sinners. But as we proclaim this, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Because conv- you know people that are living in sin, and they, they actually quite like living in sin. They've got no problem with it at all. The guy's... Might be, it might be carrying a bit of guilt if he's committing adultery, but maybe he's not. Maybe he's married to his wife and he's raising his children and he's good at his job and, and, and he's, he's absolutely fine in where he is. And when we, when we proclaim this word that you are fallen and you are lost, and unless you come to Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. If we are, if we are unable to hold on to the truth, then we can't proclaim that. I read this the other day on um, alcoholrehab.com. I was not for me, just so you know. And... Uh, I'm not denying anything, yeah, but just, um, just listen to this quote. Denial is a major barrier in the way of overcoming alcoholism or drug addiction. An absolutely essential first step is for the person to actually accept that at least they might have a problem. If the person you are concerned about does not admit that they might have a problem, in professional terms called pre-contemplation, you are facing, listen to this, an almost impossible task. This is a secular writer, I think, writing to those that are caught in alcohol and drug addiction, it's true of us spiritually. Unless we can come to the place, we recognize that truth, that second point, the second lie of the devil is actually a lie, that we are fallen and need a savior, we'll never reach out for the salvation that is being offered to us. And for us as believers, and friends, this is really important as well, we can begin to believe the lies of the devil as well. Tony, Tony Campola's son, Bart Campola, tells a story. He was part of a Christian group and he'd been with this group of young guys for eight or ten weeks doing a discipleship course. And a guy came to him one day and said to him, Tony, what's stopping you from surrendering and giving your life to Christ? And he agreed that there was nothing. And so he prayed a prayer to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. He says within, within two weeks he began to doubt the decision. He was housed in a dormitory in his, in his um, res, in a residence at university. And in his, re- in his room there were two guys that were homosexual. They were his friends. And because of his, his um, love for them, and I don't mean that in a sexual way, I mean that in a, in a platonic way, because he, he, they were his friends, he couldn't, wouldn't hold on to a view of the world that saw what they, their practice or their orientation as something sinful, and he began to doubt his salvation. And I think he had an abortive salvation experience. But even for us as Christians, as that lie begins to creep into the church, and it's crept in, I tell you, it is so hard for me to, to, 
do premarital counseling with people that haven't had sex already. It is, it is the, the, the very rare exception that a couple will come to be, a young couple, to be married that are virgins the way they got, the Bible calls it to be virgins. And so there's a baggage that they start with. It's, it is in the church of Jesus Christ, there are people that are saying from evangelical churches, which means they're saying we hold to the word of God, that God's view on homosexuality isn't what the Bible purports it to be. In fact, we have to move beyond what the Bible says to the place where we not only accept but celebrate monogamous homosexual relationships. And once that's open, how do we in any way bring any boundaries around sexuality at all? So then fornication becomes acceptable. And frankly, I don't know much of a step from there into adultery and every other sexual perversion that comes with it as well. And with that confusion, it leads to places like we're going to get into next week where like... I, um, we become fused about things that God has spoken about, like even my gender. I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. That we just, by declaration, we make it out there. What happens is the devil can bring us into a place where we get trapped by sin. And from that place, we silence. You, can't, you cannot be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ when you yourself are trapped in sin. He knows that, and he wants to lock you in there. Because in that place, our witness is tarnished, our voice is silenced, and our mandate remains covered in dust. But friends, ours is not the task of the finger pointer. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you point your fingers at people, but you don't lift a finger to help them. And ours is not to go around, homosexuals, you're wrong. Adulterers, you're wrong. Fornicators, you're wrong. Our role is to be the proclaimers of the good news. John 3, 16 through to 18 says this, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hallelujah, honestly. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So by holding on to the truths that the devil has turned into lies, we actually become the carriers of this gospel, the saving message. Colossians 1, 21-22 And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... How he talks about us before our salvation. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There was once a man who stood before Jesus and said to him, What is the truth? Imagine the irony of saying that when the man standing before you is the God man who is the way, the truth, and the life. And part of the, the mandate the church has, our responsibility is to be those standing men, the music. Stoikas. Stoika music, rather. Other way around. Hey, that's Russian, so you guys would know it, eh? Say it for me. Stoika. Stoika music. That's, that's our call. We're called to be standing men. We're not, we like those three Hebrew boys that when the trumpet sounded and everybody else bowed to the altar of tolerance, we stand. We're not condemning, we're not shouting, we're not kicking, we're not... We're not unkind. We're not harsh. We just stand. We will, we will take the person and we will love them and hold them. But we will stand. I'm, I remember at a um, church I led in South Africa. A guy arrives and one day he had cuts on his arms like this. Cut, cut pieces like this. And he came and sat and he spoke to me afterwards. And he said to me, he confessed that he was a, he was a homosexual. He'd been in many homosexual relationships. And when I, after I spoke to him, I took him and I hugged him. Because I wanted him to know that I don't hate him, but I am going to be a standing man. 
I'm not going to just endorse his sin and leave him in this life that has led to this on his arms anyway. I'm going to bring him to, uh, if, if God would let me use it, to bring him to a place of salvation through this message of grace. The devil is a liar, friends. God has spoken. And he's spoken through his word. The devil is a liar that his word is true. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. All men are fallen and in need of a savior. And the devil is a liar. No man can be autonomous. We can barely control the weather and we think we can be the masters of our own destiny. We are in two places, either a slave to sin and therefore condemned to, to an eternity apart from God, or we are slaves, bond servants to Jesus Christ and therefore brought into an eternal life with God. And so we're going to explore over these weeks ahead how on these big issues that we can stand as stoika, muziks. I've got two challenges you guys this morning i do want to invite you onto a journey of salvation i don't want you to be like bart campola and in a moment of emotionalism say okay i'll take jesus christ as my lord and savior but not have come to the place of deep conviction that only the holy spirit can bring and so it might be that the that the spirit of god will lead you over a number of weeks or or even months to a place where you come to real surrender but at the same time, if the Holy Spirit is calling you even now, you don't have to wait one minute or one day to come to a place of being reconciled to God your Father through Jesus Christ. It is freely available to you today. And in a moment, I want to give you an opportunity, if you are someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ in that way. And remember, I'm not talking about a member of a church. I'm not talking about you writing Christian on your immigration form. Or wherever it is that you write that down these days. I'm talking about somebody who has confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. The second challenge I want to bring is to us that are believers already. I think undermining the word of God has done two things. I think, I think some people do sit with a doubt around whether the word of God really is God's truth. Whether the, well, whether the Bible is the Word of God. And um, I want to invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to come in and bring a conviction for you around the Word of God. See, this is no more an act of faith than coming to Jesus Christ as an act of faith. How do we know that this is God's Word? It makes unbelievable sense. It's an incredible book written over this long and loud and all those things. That, that, but at the end of the day, to accept this as the word of God has to be a step of faith that you take. And I believe that we can have that conviction by the spirit of God, even today as you surrender. And then lastly, if you have been somebody caught in an area of sin, if the devil has persuaded you, and maybe, maybe it is um, sexual sin, maybe it's greed or anger or addictions or in, of any sort, the devil has led you into a place where you are caught up in a sin. This morning... I want to give you an opportunity. I don't, I don't need you to come and confess it to anybody. Now, you can do that later. You can do that. And often is a really important thing to do. But what I want to do is give you the opportunity this morning to be able to say to God, God, I'm, I'm trusting your word. I'm, I'm tired of believing the lies of the devil. I'm tired of making excuses for this. I don't know how I can be set free. I believe it's through Christ. I just don't understand exactly how. But today, I want to give you that opportunity to begin that work in my life. That makes sense? Okay, why don't you stand with me, please? Leroy, can I have the other mic? Thanks. <laughs>